Marketers of the world, why do we work hard to solve small problems? It's time to bring home bigger paychecks. It's time to create the lifestyle we deserve and to make a greater impact. This is the Fractional CMO Show, and I'm Casey Stanton. Join me as we explore this growing industry and learn to solve bigger problems. The Fractional CMO Show is sponsored by CMOX, the number one company to teach you how to attract, convert, and serve clients as an in-demand fractional CMO. Hey there, it's Casey Stanton with the Fractional CMO Show, and I'm here with an incredible leader and strategist, a fractional CMO for professional services firms, co-host of the Rattle and Pedal podcast, and CEO of Prudent Pedal, Jeff McKay. Hey, Jeff, welcome. Casey. Hey, I'm excited to have you here, and I'm excited for a couple reasons. One, you're inside the CMOX Accelerator, and um, you're, you're special, I think, uh, as, a, as a member of the Accelerator because you're, you're a marketer who has been a consultant for years, and you've worked with businesses for years. I mean, just in prepping for this, you're, you're mentioning um, uh, different kind of models that you have and how you think through how um, different people show up in businesses and, and things like that. And it's, it's clear to me that you've been doing this a long time. You know what you're doing. You know how to drive value. And I'm really excited for us to dive in. Um, and the first thing I want to talk about is, is the niche that you've chosen. You know, you're, this, you're the preeminent fractional CMO in the professional services firm. And today I want to talk about how those firms can grow past 10 million a year with marketing. But, but first, can we just talk about what is a professional services firm? It's a great question. Um, it's, it's, it's kind of like politics. What's conservative? What's liberal? What's orthodox? What's unorthodox? It, it's important to, to grind, uh, ground it. Um, so for professional services, most people would think of them as accounting firms or law firms. Um, I really have kind of expanded beyond that definition. To me, professional services firms are, are business services, but they're insight-driven firms. They have some combination of a professional service. Uh, they have technology and they have some kind of data or knowledge that drives insight. And the clients that I work with have some combination of those. Um, we even work with SaaS companies a lot because I operate under this hypothesis. Some people might argue with me that SaaS firms are really the professional services firms of the future mm. because they are specifically designed to drive insights from data and enable, you know, uh, any number of, of enhanced be behaviors. So, oh, that's when, fascinating. Okay. So when you talk about insight driven firms, like give me an example of like, what's an insight or what kind of data or knowledge to drive an insight? Um, well, here's, here's one from my past. Uh, I was uh, CMO of Hewitt Associates, big human capital consulting and outsourcing firm because they outsourced um, 401k, uh, management, healthcare, right. uh, health insurance. They sat on this huge load of data and that allowed them to analyze and draw incredible insights. One on what were the trends happening in these fortune 500 companies, but also um, not just from a, a corporate perspective in terms of strategies, but individual behaviors. 
so that they can take that collective learning and begin to restructure the strategies for these companies. And, you know, companies are always looking for ways to reduce healthcare costs. Um, but Hewitt was smart enough to understand that all companies don't think that same way. And that data enabled them to really go after a segmented market, to segment their markets and go after, um, you know, these fortune 2000 companies in many different ways. And that led them to, you know, some solutions in the middle market that are really cool. So anyway. Okay. So I think this is really interesting. So uh, the connection that I'm making is with Salim Ismail's book called Exponential Organizations. And he says that um, there's traits that exponential organizations have. And one of those traits is dashboards and data. And if you have dashboards and data and you have, you know, community and crowd or something, you match those together, you can create something really um, interesting, something that is exponential. And I think that's really fascinating. So you were the CMO of an organization that had a ton of data about people and behavior related to what healthcare. And they were able to take that data and kind of devise product from it. That's exactly what we did. And, so cool. and, you know, so there's, and, and it was brilliant strategy because so much of professional services work is project-based work. And the goal is to really to create more of an annuity stream where you have more consistent, uh, income coming in, less selling costs associated with that. And the strategy was really about taking those consulting insights and productizing them. And professional services firms are horrific at productizing. They just mm -hmm. are not effective at it. But when you bring together that combination of professional services and technology and data, it, it, it empowers a different way of looking at the market versus trying to have kind of a turnkey project product that you're yeah. selling. So it very much is that exponential organization thinking that you're talking about. So and that's what's so exciting about the space is because these firms are working on cutting edge problems with mm. the best firms, with the best leaders, you know, from all over the world. And it's just so dynamic. And that's what's so exciting about it. That's super exciting. So I'm, I'm having a hard time connecting that data-driven, which makes sense in the healthcare space, to, to lawyers. How does that work with lawyers? How does that work with law firms? What kind of insights do they have? I don't work with lawyers. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, I, lawyers are too smart for me. Lawyers are old school. And I think they'll always be old school. That's not fair. But... No, we don't work with law firms because they, um, they're too siloed. Um, I don't mm. think they're open-minded enough and they are ones that are clearly living and dying by the billable hour. And most progressive firms that are really driving growth have moved away from the billable hour, at least as its core, mm -hmm. uh, metric to value-based pricing. Absolutely. You have to move to value-based pricing on that kind of stuff. I mean, lawyers are just getting uh, burned out, I would think. And also, I think maybe with the whole Web3 smart contracts, maybe there's less of a need of, of lawyers. I don't know. We'll see what happens. They're probably going to have their way uh, and, and stay relevant. 
Okay, so other professional services firms. What's another example of a professional services firm that, that you uh, have worked with? IT consulting is a major one. Managed service, uh, managed service providers, uh, risk management consulting firms. We work with a lot of insurance firms, um, managing risk. Um, well, those types of firms are insuring risk, but we work with pure risk management. I find risk management fascinating. So fascinating. And there's another one that's, that's combining, you know, the consulting, the technology and the insights because they have so much access to data mm -hmm. and analyzing, analyzing that data. So you're like uh, working with these companies that have this, this, um, data warehouse and they're able to do something with it. Uh, so those companies, like all companies, they start somewhere. Usually they're built kind of on the back of a hardworking executive that gets it to their first million, the first couple million, et cetera. But a company that gets to 10 million a year in business is, is great. It's, it's a huge deal for that firm, uh, for that individual. They're probably having some lifestyle outcomes that they're really enjoying. But they, like any goal in life, right, the hedonic treadmill, like once you reach that outcome, you just want the next outcome. You're never really satisfied. So knowing that that's going to happen, how do these, these professional services firms specifically go from $10 million to a number greater than that? And how does marketing come to play? Great question. Uh, each firm is unique, but they have to become unfettered from, you know, I am the expert and they need to set up the organization for scale. Um, and a big part of that is moving away from billable hours and a simple pyramid of go out, kill something, bring it back, clean it, feed it to a team and, mm -hmm. and, you know, keep going because that's very much a feast or famine type of model. Yeah. And what happens in organizations, um, like we've been talking about is they begin having success from some or solution. You and I talked earlier, the specialist always wins. Um, yeah. but as, as they begin to grow and their brand begins to shine, clients come back to them and start asking them to do, you know, adjacent type of stuff for them, or they add additional capabilities that give them access to new services or solutions. What happens in professional services is this phenomenon called the performance envelope, where early on the whole organization is built around scale and profitability around a single solution. Mm. But the, the competitive pressures, the market demands on the organization make it um, start spinning off these additional solutions into these new markets, mm -hmm. the, uh, adjacencies or whatever. Well, then that begins to erode the brand um, and organizations start to really lose focus and their investments into these things are discombobulated mm. and growth slows. So when you hit 10 million or whatever that number is, the key is to manage proactively that tension that exists between the core profit engine and the periphery of these new solutions that are expanding your brand. 
And that's the one thing that most professional organizations don't get, but the top firms get is they know mm. how to manage the current brand and the brand that they're going to be, you know, to steal the Wayne Gretzky uh, adage. They know how to skate to where the puck is going to be. And I think in my experience, that's why it's marketing strategy and proactively managing that brand evolution is so critical. It's so critical for managing growth in the short term, but also positioning for growth in the long term. Oh, that's really fascinating. Okay, so I'm getting a lot out of this. Um, performance envelope, that's a new term for me. I like that. Uh, this idea that a professional services firm creates a solution which got them to 10 million. That makes sense. They got there. And now there's all of these other adjacent needs that they're seeing. And then they start servicing that and say, oh, there's a profit center over here. There's a profit center over there. And as they do that, their brand that's known for solving the one problem starts to get watered down because they solve too many other problems. And you're saying that they need to have like a, a concentrated marketing strategy and leadership inside the organization to maintain the brand standards, maintain the brand um, perception, maybe create new brands, uh, that kind of thing to maintain their position in the marketplace without losing while they grow. Is that right? Exactly right. And, and there is this phenomenon in professional services I call the BS of PS. Just given the very nature of professional services, they're pure knowledge-based organizations. They generally start out as partnerships of some kind where there's equity stake concentrated among a small individuals, and then they bring others into that equity over time. Well, the way they bring people in is they have to substantiate themselves by gener generating a certain amount of revenue. So there is a push because I want to be partner to go out and build a book of business, whatever it is, I don't care. I just want to hit a certain revenue number so I can become partner. And that's a, that's part of that performance envelope tension that needs to be managed. And more often than not in professional services firm, because they lack strategic marketing leadership and marketing becomes more of an order taker, it becomes a culture of optionality and yeah. self-directedness, mm -hmm. right? And that's, that's what kills growth. Yes, you can decentralize growth and and allow these partners to to build books of business that's one way to grow but it's going to be suboptimal and it's not scalable because sure. the brand erodes it becomes it meaningless to everybody and the investments are duplicated triplicated <laughs> and it's just not efficient it's just not efficient uh, that makes a lot of sense to me I, and i and i definitely have seen that happen um with firms that are growing, just companies just generally growing and, and kind of losing sight, marketing can feel like, like th there's, there's marketing. Like when someone says, oh, I'm a marketer, you know, you, you first like, are you really like one of us or not? And then you realize that all they do is work inside of um, PowerPoint to create brochures. Exactly. Right. And like, that's a lot of marketing departments. And I think the bigger the company gets, the more it's collateral, the more it's maybe like, you know, you could call it um, like sales supporting collateral sales enablement collateral. And sure, like that's a component of marketing, but I think what you're talking about here is the big picture, the holistic thing, the like, where are we going? Are we on the right path for it? If we develop these products, what's gonna happen to our perception? I mean, I think like in, in, in the terms that I've seen it, like 
Coca-Cola has Coke and Diet Coke. They like might iterate and have different Coke, you know, for a little while. They might have the orange zero Coke, which I had it like the month it was out and it was great. And then it disappeared because they can't afford to lose the strength of their brand. They need to be Coke and Diet Coke kind of exclusively. And if anyone can find that, you know, um, like the unicorn of diet caffeine free Coke, like that's impossible to find, right? They make it, but they don't make it that available because they got to keep that um, that brand standard. And and I think that that makes a lot of sense. So is there a specific um, campaign type that these professional services should be doing? A prof- like a, a specific kind of measurable to know like they're on the right track or not. So one thing is maybe having a brand standard and a plan for their brand. But like what else? Is there like another um, uh, like waypoint? that they should be at or be planning to, uh, you know, get to, to be on track for growth? Yeah, I, I think there's a, there's a couple of, of things. One is, is kind of structural and cultural. Um, you've kind of alluded to this in, in your response uh, just a few minutes ago. I say there's two schools of thought of marketing in professional services firms. The first school of thought is called the productivity school. Because these firms are driven by utilization in the billable hour, the whole idea is to offload anything that is not client billable to somebody that can do it a lot cheaper, right? Mm -hmm. It makes perfect business sense. Right. But what happens in that situation is your partners become the marketing gurus, so they think, and marketing becomes order takers. For sure. And the KPIs in an organization like that are all productivity based. How many events did you have? How many white papers did you produce? This is the bingo card. Yeah. Cover all the, all the dots. It's horrible. And it's, it just wastes money. Um, just wastes money. The second school of thought is what I call the growth school. And this has a completely different expectation uh, for marketing. And it's about delivering strategic impact. And it's driven by KPIs like uh, pipeline contribution, market share, NPS, things that are moving the business as a whole. Mm-hmm. And, you know, these other KPIs support that. Sure. You know, if you're doing 100 white papers, maybe you're not <laughs> focused or something. You could look On at NPS, that. yeah. I mean, if a company yeah. isn't running NPS, that's a great list, litmus that they don't have an understanding of, of their... Um, of the satisfaction of, of the referability of their organization. And if anyone's listening and doesn't know, NPS is the net promoter score, which is like the only number that you can really shop around uh, company to company and kind of have a even Stevens game of, of satisfaction. Yeah. That's so a big if you want to grow, if you want to grow, you have to move out of that productivity mindset and set higher expectations for your marketing that they should be delivering strategic impact. Because in order to deliver strategic impact, they have to integrate marketing, sales, and client service delivery, and they can't be siloed and they need business minds. They don't need communications minds. So that's, that's number one. Number two is great. I don't think in terms of campaigns, as much as I think in terms of managing the performance envelope and the way you manage the performance envelope is to think through who is your ideal client. And the ideal client is that client who um, sees the world as you see it, the simpatico that we talked about earlier, 
and value the value you provide. Because most firms will take anybody that is going to pay them money, but those aren't the best clients for them. So being very clear about who the clients are that value the value you provide is critical. Then identifying what you want to be known for and what you want to be known for is solving particular issues. Yeah, and for what sure. are those issues? And then those become the organizing construct for campaigns that allow you to manage the brand in the short term, the core, but also in the long term, that periphery of the performance envelope that's spinning out those growth areas for the firm. I love that. I think that I think you're just so spot on with that. This this idea of moving from productivity, which is how much can we get done, to growth, which is how much growth can we have? Like it it doesn't matter. Like if people work five hours and get the outcome, or if they work forty hours, it doesn't matter. It's the outcome that matters. Uh, then there's there's a there's a way to lead as as the as the leader in the marketing department. It's not did you do your homework? It's did you get your outcome? Right? And you give people that opportunity to kind of work up to that outcome instead of executing a like a myopic set of tasks, some kind of micromanaged thing. Yeah, I think that's really great. Um, okay, so so I want to talk about you, Jeff. It, it's it's obviously clear that like you have experience in this. I love these things that you have like structural versus cultural, the PS of, uh, the BS of PS, uh, the performance envelope stuff. I, I, I love it. Um, so let's talk about you. You're in the Chicagoland area. And you started this company, Prudent Pedal. Um, when did you start the company? Uh, I'm going into my 10th year. Great. So and before, in, before you joined CMOX, you really like hung the shingle out that said, Prudent Pedal, you're doing consulting and coaching. And I'm curious, what's the shift? What's the difference by shifting and stating that you're a fractional CMO and doing the fractional CMO stuff, which it honestly sounds like you've been doing, but you just haven't been calling it that. Yeah. Um, it, well, my strength has always been strategy. Um, you know, I didn't grow up as a traditional marketer. I came up through sales and operations and uh, the technology side of the business. I grew up in a family business, so I got a lot of exposure early uh, to develop my business acumen, if you will. So I always think more as a business person than as a marketer, um, I think. Um, so you grew up in a family business? Yes. Like, so you grew up kind of appreciating not the effort, but the outcome. It, it was all about the outcome. <laughs> yeah, I mean, was. if, yeah, I, I would imagine, you know, I grew up in a family and my dad worked for IBM and he put in his hours and his outcome kind of didn't matter. I mean, he had his sales goals and stuff like that, but like he didn't really impact the bottom line of the business in a way that he was necessarily directly compensated for. He was an employee. So you're, you grew up in a family where you got to see kind of brass tacks. I think that gives you like a very interesting origination. You know, it was, it was really interesting um, because I grew up, the, the family business was auto parts and I was third generation and I was being groomed, you know, to be an executive there. Um, so you, you did get this exposure to business in a much different way. Um, but what I really took away from that, um, one, you were always in business, right? When we were out for dinner or went to a sporting event, you know, my dad was teaching us about business and analyzing 
you know, service delivery or an ad, you know, amazing, the, you know, the outfield wall of a stadium or something. So we were always, a always immersed in that. But the other, the other thing about being in the family business is this sense of stewardship, right? His father left the business to him and his brother, and he and his brother were leaving it to their kids. And there was always this sense that you left the firm better than you found it. And our name was on the building. So we always conducted ourselves a certain way mm -hmm. in the communities that we were, we were in generally, but also from a very, you know, business specific way as well. And, you know, it was those attributes that were shared with the professional services world. I mean, carburetors and audits in, in the accounting world have nothing in common, really. Right. But they, they do have this client-centric focus, a sense of stewardship and, um, you know, having a name on the building. And I think that's one of the unique things that coming out of the auto parts business into professional services world made me unique mm -hmm. in, in, in understanding both sides of that. Yeah. That business world. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Okay, so you were doing then consulting work after you left uh, the CMO gig consulting and coaching and both, both great things. I, I, I mean, I think the coaching world has definitely been growing, but then there's this notion of the fractional CMO. How is the work that you're doing now different as a fractional CMO? What do you think that you're kind of uh, being deputized to do? What kind of additional responsibility or different responsibility do you have? You know, when I was in high school, um, and then you take those personality tests, Mm -hmm. uh, to get a career mindset, I should be a teacher, a psychologist, or a priest. And I okay. like to say I got into marketing and did all three. Sounds like it, right? Right. That's the therapist and, part. <laughs> yeah. And as I, when I left the family business and went to work for Arthur Anderson after I, I got my MBA, um, the thing that I loved about marketing, um, was the strategy stuff and the solving big problems. Um, but it was the people, um, and developing people. And as a consultant, you get to do a little of that in coaching, you get to do that, but it's not the same as building teams and having teams perform at a high level. Yeah. Um, I love, I love building marketing organizations, um, and not, not to build them for fiefdoms, um, cause there, there are CMOs and executives who do that. That's not my, that's not where I, uh, get juice. It's watching the people develop and deliver. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's such a great point. And I mean, the fractional CMO, like, like so the consultant, whenever a company that I've ever been with hired a consultant, everyone rolled their eyes. And no one wants a consultant in my experience, right? Like a consultant can be helpful. They can come in. I think of them as a mercenary. You pay them for a job. They do the job. They get out. But a consultant doesn't stick around necessarily. And oftentimes consultants, um, certainly not you, but like consultants that I've worked with have, uh, 
I've kind of come in almost drunkenly and like prescribed solutions that were inappropriate for the team or the budget or the industry or whatever. A fractional CMO doesn't do that. You get in, you get, you get deep, you get dirty. You know the, the people that you're building. You build a team, a family as the fractional CMO uh, and they execute. And I think that that's just, it's just fundamentally different. Do you agree? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I do think there are those kind of used car salesmen type of consultants out there and people are right to be weary of them. I think one of the things that really unique about professional services firms, and, and this is my bias because I think other fractional CMOs would say the same things about the industries that they serve. But at the heart of our marketing model is the cultural DNA of a firm. Because the strategies, the organiz the marketing organization and the tactics that you use in firm A, who may be in the exact same industry, be the same size and serve the same geography as firm B don't work. Right. And you cannot know that to the same degree as a consultant, as you can be as a fractional CMO who is more immersed in the day-to-day -day operations of the, of the business. Um, and, and I think that- And the value that, of that is enormous. Like being able to see it, something early is worth so much more than kind of waiting for it to be a big enough problem for a consultant to solve. Yeah, I, it, it, it's kind of like, um, you know, being a parent and just spending time with your, your kids on the weekends versus being a stay-at-home parent where the kids are coming in and out and you have these serendipitous moments all day long. Mm -hmm. You know, the fractional CMO gets more of those serendipitous moments um, and looks into the business and to the people that add so much more value that you just can't get because that value only comes with exposure and time. Right. And the trust that comes with you being the guy that's there that shows up. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And, and, and once you've built that trust, then the team members are going to share stuff with you that they were afraid to share before, maybe because they thought their job was in jeopardy. And then you can go and solve that. I mean, it just, just, you're the inside guy, right? Is that how you feel? Absolutely. And, and it's funny that you say that, um, the most of the, uh, Managing partners and CEOs hire me, not the marketers. Right. So when I come into an organization and the marketers see me, um, generally there's an apprehension, like they've underperformed or they are going to lose their jobs or something like that. And the first thing I do is assure them that that's not the case, that my success is their success, um, and that I'm there to develop them. And you cannot develop a world-class marketer unless you're a world-class marketer developing them. Yes. And the conversations I have um, with them <laughs> are some of my favorite conversations. You know, one of the first conversations I'll have with them is saying, hey, if you don't have headhunters calling you right now for job opportunities, we have a problem. Because that tells me that you don't have the skills that are in demand in the market. And if you don't have the skills that are demand in the market, what are you going to contribute to this organization? That's great, man. 
So, so either we need to develop your skills, you need to develop your skills, or we're going to have an issue. Yeah. And high performers hear that, Casey, and they're like, whoa, that's so cool. I can't believe he just said that. But um, if it's true, then that is so cool. And I know that the team has really gelled when the first person on the team comes to me and says, um, Jeff, I just want to let you know, I got a call from a headhunter. Um, and I'm not sure if I should take it or what I should do. And I even tell them when you get the call, come to me, I'll help you think through it, whether you should stay or whether you should go. Um, and, and that's because you have the ability to create the environment for them to stick around where they can earn what they're worth as long as they increase their worth it's it's kind of a beautiful cycle right and that's i i think most professional services firms that are high performing think about people management that way they push yep. their people you know those cultures are crucibles of development um and that's the type of marketing organization that i like to create make people better you want people to be there from choice not because they don't think they have another choice. You want people to work in a world of abundance and be able to take risks and not have fear that if they screw something up, they'll lose their job. And then there's no possibility they could find another job. You're building people up so that they can lift the organization instead of keep people kind of enslaved, which I think is so common. I, I think you're spot on. Oh, I love you it, know, man. They're stuck in, stuck in productivity school type of thinking, just mm -hmm. taking an just taking orders and, and stuff like that. And then when I come in as a fractional CMO, because I have real tough skin, um, you know, I can take the arrows, right? Right. That's, our That's job. my team. I take responsibility for the team. I don't blame the team for shortcomings. I take the hits for the shortcomings. Yes. And that gives them the freedom and the space to take risk and really have an impact. And you don't have that when you don't have a CMO type of, of role in your organization. It's just open exposure and your year-end job evaluation is how responsive you were to a partner and whether that partner likes you. Right. Not helpful. You know, that's a horrible place to be in. Yeah. Okay. So Jeff, so, so I'm picking up a lot here um, uh, and I want to do a re quick recap. So. You're working with professional services firms, and these are firms that have insight uh, and data, and they're able to create knowledge from that data and do something with that insight, create new products. Uh, and as they do that, they're going to potentially weaken their brand position because they were known for doing the thing, and now they're doing multiple things, and the, the market kind of questions it. So by you coming in, you're supporting the team development. You're building a stronger team, uh, a team that you can count on, a team that's world-class. You're keeping the brand tight and strong, maybe creating additional brands as needed to support these other products. Your numbers focused, your outcome focused, you talk about the growth school. Um, my, I mean, I think your, your view on things here is like, if it doesn't make money, it doesn't make sense. And also we have to support the people. It's kind of the two sides of it, um, which I think is really exciting to hear. And, and I just love what you're up to. Uh, seems like you just have like a ton of experience. I've just, I've just learned so much here. So if folks want to get in touch with you, um, you were kind enough to, to offer a meeting link at prudentpedal.com forward slash meeting, P-R-U-D-E-N-T-P-E-D-A-L.com forward slash meeting. And anyone can, uh, you know, if you're interested in working with Jeff, schedule a 30-minute call there. 
Jeff, any anything else that you want to share before we uh, we wrap up? Fun. This has been fun. I hope uh, there are many out there that get an appreciation for this industry, which is like no other. Um, the professional services space, whether it's you know consulting or um, IT or any other kind of B two B, attracts some of the most driven and intelligent people out there um, that are so client focused. And if you like working with smart people, there's just no better industry um, to be in. I love that. I love that. And I, I, I totally agree. I mean, it seems like pulling that data together, that's the future. That's where things are going. What an exciting place to be. Um, like Gretzky's dad, skating where the puck's going makes a ton of sense. So Jeff, um, anyone else also can tune into your podcast, Rattle and Pedal, the podcast. Uh, thank you for having me on. That was a great episode and appreciate uh, you being on today. I'll chat with you soon. Thank you for joining us for today's show. For more information and episodes, visit our site at fractionalcmoshow.com. Go ahead and punch that like and subscribe button on your favorite podcast app. It means a lot, at least to my mom.